Stop eating junk food. That's it. Stop eating junk food. We have to take responsibility. We, we're in charge of our bodies, not the government, not healthcare, that's for sure. We need to take charge. That's really the, the best recommendation and the, the one that's going to help the fastest is, re, is getting rid of junk food. Welcome to Better with Dr. Stephanie. I am your host, Dr. Stephanie Estima. This show is for women just like you with a deep desire for learning, self-actualization, and becoming more of who you already are. Every week, we are going to deconstruct how to build better bodies, better minds, better relationships, better sex, and better families. I'll be giving you access to world-class thought leaders to help give you the tools to answer this question. What are the simplest things that you can do today to get better tomorrow? I am part geek, part magic, and want to share the juiciest questions, topics, and often taboo conversations that I think I've always wanted to be a part of and I wanted to be having. So let's get better together. Hey everyone, welcome back. This week, I have a conversation with Dr. Phil Mafton. He is an author, a healthcare practitioner with decades of experience, clinical and uh, writing papers and books, um, helping everyone from amateurs to world-class athletes optimize their health and their performance. If you have ever tried to figure out your maximum aerobic heart rate and you have done the formula 180 minus your age, that that is Dr. Phil's influence um, on your life. He is the creator of the 180 formula and the creator of the maximum aerobic fitness test. Um, he defines in this episode, we are going to talk all about aerobic capacity and how less is more. And I know that seems backwards, but we will talk about this at length today. We talk about the, um, importance of optimizing and improving the cross-sectional density of our type one muscle fibers. And we talk, we define what our type one muscle fibers are. We talk about the difference between, between being fit and healthy. And uh, Phil wrote a paper in uh, 2016, which we'll make sure that we link to, uh, called Athletes Fit But Unhealthy. And he talks about his realization around that. We talk about maximum aerobic function, and in essence, the goal being healthy and fit um, to develop the aerobic system. And we talk about why the aerobic system development is the goal. We talk about the different types of exercises that will recruit different types of muscle fibers and what happens when you are doing HIIT training all the time, uh, when you are actually superseding the muscle fibers capacity to even use any energy system, you're just depleting stored ATP in the muscle fiber or in the muscle tissue itself. And then we get into a conversation around being over fat. And this is a term that Phil has used um, in, in lieu of being overweight. He talks about the um, excess adiposity and its influence on our immune system, its influence on our aerobic function, its influence on every single 
aspect of our lives. And he's written uh, papers, again, we'll link out to particularly the blog post that he uh, um, talks about uh, comorbidities in being over fat and outcomes with COVID-19. And we have, uh, you know, we sort of finish our conversation with a, uh, you know, what can people do? You know, we've all been told that more is more. And uh, we're trying to, you know, we said this several times in our conversation, we're trying to make slow sexy. <laughs> like, How do we make training slowly the, the thing that um, people do in order to maximize their aerobic function? So we have a conversation about that. And for all of you type A personalities out there, please listen with an open mind. I think that even myself, uh, when I first was introduced to Phil's work uh, many years ago, I was like, this guy's nuts. Like you got to go hard in order to, it's got to hurt, you know, like no pain, no gain. And um, of course, now in retrospect, um, as I am working to continue to optimize for my own aerobic capacity, his approach, of course, makes the most sense. I was just too young and naive at the time to acknowledge it. So I hope that you get a lot out of this conversation. Uh, I know that I will. And anybody who is trying to optimize their cardiovascular system, which should be a primary goal in 22. And whenever there is, uh, you know, big bad viruses uh, running amok, we want to be optimizing our respiratory capacity, our oxygen capacity and our aerobic capacity. So without further delay, please enjoy my conversation with Dr. Phil Mafton. I get a lot of questions about how to ease perimenopause and menopause symptoms. And here's a really simple answer for you. Take a good mineral supplement. Your body loses a ton of minerals as you transition through perimenopause and menopause, and mineral deficiencies make a lot of the common symptoms worse. For example, if you're struggling with poor sleep, fatigue, joint pain, hot flashes, or any other side effects that are wearing you down, you might think about giving Beam Minerals a try. Their full-spectrum mineral supplement contains every single mineral that you lose during perimenopause and menopause. And there is a meaningful dose here with close to 100% bioavailability. All you have to do is take a shot of liquid every morning to replenish your mineral stores and ease the symptoms that you might be experiencing. Beam Minerals just taste like water and you'll feel the difference within a few days. Head over to beamminerals.com and use the code BETTER for 20% off. Dr. Phil Maftone, I am so excited to welcome you to the Better Podcast. Welcome. Thanks, Stephanie. I, I appreciate it. Thanks for having me. Yeah, I uh, I reached out to you, cold reached out to you because I wanted to talk about um, aerobic uh, capacity, how we can maximize our efficiency, which we're going to talk a lot about today. Uh, you talk, so and you're, you know, very well known for this formula that we're going to talk about in terms of how we can, uh, increase our, uh, aerobic function and capacity at, if, you know, whether you are somebody who is looking to, uh, augment performance or you're a weekend warrior, or you're, you know, you just want to lose a little bit more fat and you want to stop, um, you know, gaining and losing the same 10 pounds over and over again. So, uh, which is, you know, a problem that I see a lot, especially particularly with women, uh, the women that I, that I look after. So before we jump into all that juicy stuff, I wanted to introduce my audience a little bit, uh, to you around your origin story, your backstory. Of course, I know you're a chiropractor, very impressive, uh, clinical history. Uh, and you also started out as a runner. Is that correct? Yeah, I was a runner in high school and I ran in college and um, 
when I got out into practice, I started doing road racing. Um, and, um, and so, yeah, but I, I also played, um, baseball, football, uh, I swam competitively. Um, I cycled, uh, when there, there were hardly any cyclists around, um, and eventually did some triathlons, um, and, and all, all kinds of other things. I, I, I was pretty good, uh, in sports with the exception of basketball for some reason. And when we talk about your, uh, you know, as I mentioned, um, I want to discuss your clinical insights, uh, that eventually led to the development of the, um, maximum aerobic function, uh, test, which we're going to get to. Um, you wrote a paper in, uh, 2016, uh, titled athletes fit, but unhealthy. I wanted to maybe start there. Uh, and if you could unpack, uh, some of the observations that you were having in clinical practice with the athletes under your care, who, uh, you know, whether it was their training regimen, gait, posture, mechanical distortions, why they kept re-injuring themselves and how do you distinguish between, um, someone who is fit, um, and someone who is healthy? Yeah, this is an interesting thing. And it, it, it really started to come together when I was a student, um, because uh, a, a lot of the people I had worked out with, a lot of the, the, the teams, you know, kind of for fun teams, um, and then some of the uh, competitive um, people that were around um, were, were injured a lot. And I thought, well, I, I guess I'm not injured a lot because I'm lazy. I was a lazy athlete. Um, I did really well being a lazy athlete. And I, and I always wondered about that. And I realized that um, people were just running themselves into the ground. And um, soon after I got into practice, I, um, I started seeing it up close um, with the patients I was working with, the athletes in particular, um, people who were, um, you know, working out regularly, becoming really good athlete, athletes from a competitive standpoint. And yet they were sick all the time. They had all kinds of uh, physical problems. They had uh, biochemical problems, mental, emotional problems, and, you know, you name it, or combinations of those. And in, uh, in 1980, I ran the New York City Marathon, and I'm thinking this is, I, I, somehow I was thinking about this. I guess I needed something to think about to get me through those last few miles. And as I'm crossing the finish line, I, I'm thinking, gee, I'm, you know, there's this thing between health and fitness that, you know, we're, we throw those terms around so loosely um, when in fact they're, they're very specific. Health is a system where uh, everything in our brain and body is working in harmony. All the different systems, the neuromuscular system, the digestive system, the nervous system and so forth. Um, fitness uh, is different. Fitness is the ability to be physically active, to be competitive if you're a competitive athlete. And they don't always um, uh, come together the right way. And as a result, I had this idea that athletes can be unhealthy. 
Um, and um, I got a lot of flack for that back in the in the eighties. Um, and because we we are in this society where you know it's sort of like everything's cut and dry. Um, you know, what do you do? Well, I do this. And if you do more than one thing, you're considered an oddball. And um, athletes were the, the, the epitome of health. They were like on a pedestal. They were the healthiest um, humans on earth. So we're told by the newspapers, the sports magazines, and just the general feeling uh, from the entire population. Well, that's totally wrong. Um, when you have um, a 28-year-old um, marathoner uh, who's a professional world-class athlete dropping dead at five miles into a marathon, that 28-year-old was not healthy because you don't collapse and die at age 28 um, when you're a great marathoner. Um, and so um, it, it took a while, but, um, and I wrote about this in uh, a lot of my, the books I wrote and the textbooks and so forth. Um, and finally, in whenever, 2016, you said, um, the, the article Athletes Fit But Unhealthy was published in Sports Medicine, I believe. Um, and that, that kind of shook up the sports world a little bit, even, even at that late date. Um, and I talked about overtraining and I defined health and I defined fitness and, um, and it was, you know, I think, I think you're starting to see things change now and people are realizing that, gee, I'm an athlete, but, uh, I'm, I'm sick a lot or I'm, I'm hurting a lot. I've got recurring injuries uh, therefore, something's wrong. Those are not normal. Right. And I think that that pairs up with my own clinical observation as well. So in clinic, I would see marathon runners and they always looked like they were closest to death than any other athlete that I was, that I, specifically the marathon runners. It was recurring injuries, always like the knee or the foot, you know, the ankle, the toe, whatever it was, always getting sick, always mentally worn down. But also, peculiarly or not, married to the idea that training should feel like punishment. Like every time yep. they go out, <clears throat> they need to kill it. They need to destroy their leg. And they would use terms like that. Like, I am going to go and destroy my legs. I am going to go and, you know, mar my body. And, you know, maybe they didn't say it that way, but there was almost this mentality, almost this like badge of honor. Like, oh, I, I ran like, you know, whatever it was, 30K, 40, you know, whatever it was, my long run on Sunday. And now, you know, I can't walk today. And it's like, Guys, this is but not. I'm going to train anyway because m my competitors are training, so I've got to train. Yeah, we we have this obsession um, uh, with with injuries in particular. Um, injuries are glorified, and we still see it today. Um, th it began years ago with television when when television started to uh, show sports competition the Olympics in particular, they would glorify um, injuries. If somebody was taped up, they'd say, hey, Big Joe plays hurt, he's tough. Well, what does that 
do to a 10-year-old kid who's listening to this and watching Big Joe out there limping around with all these bandages. You know, he wants to play hurt too because he wants to be considered tough. And, um, you know, in, in the beginning of the, of the running boom, um, there was a phenomenon where our runners would get uh, high white blood counts. And, <clears throat> and after a short period of time, the running magazine started saying, well, this is a, a, a badge that you're training hard, that you're training right. And, and so if you have a high abnormal- That your immune system is mounting a defense to your yeah. end, <laughs> right? Yeah. yeah. And so it was, you know, if you have this, congratulations, uh, you're special, you're a runner, you're, you know, and just, it's just so much crap that- the, the, the magazines get away with the, the, the media in general and society as a whole, we, you know, we're, we're just, we're, di- we're teaching the wrong things to people, especially to kids. And, um, and it, it's really, once you get into that vicious cycle, it's hard to get out of it. It's hard to say, no, no, no. Uh, high white blood count is abnormal and it means you're overtraining or this recurring knee injury you have, means you're doing something wrong. Let's figure out what it is. And so, you know, I mean, there are, I've had athletes who, who were a little taken back by the fact that, uh, you know, I, I'm going to be able to help them get rid of this knee problem and it's not going to return. Uh, it's like, well, you know, what am I going to complain about? Complain about the weather. I mean, you know, come on. Right. Or the politics, <laughs> something else, yes. something else other than your knee. <laughs> yeah. And I would say that's true for women, like female athletes as well, which I've taken quite, a, you know, I have many athletes, female athletes under my, uh, when I was still in, in, in clinical practice, amenorrheic, like their body fat percentages. We're going to talk about over fat, under fat in a moment, but didn't have periods because they were trying to get to this unattainable, unsustainable, I'll say, level of leanness uh, that negated their fertility, right? So they, it's like this trade-off and some, you know, there was, um, I used to think about this and I would, I would actually, and this is a bit of a tangent, but I used to think that health and performance almost were at odds with each other because in order to be healthy, um, you know, you needed to do things like recover, like nurse the injury to reverse some of the compensatory mechanical patterns that were living in the body to, you know, to create that reoccurring low back or knee or whatever it was. Mm-hmm. And performance is a very specific, you know, especially if you're an an elite athlete, you know, you are doing the same movements over, it's like to perform at a high level is to be able to, in some cases, withstand overuse injuries. So I always thought that these two concepts, health and performance, were at odds with each other. Um, And of course, we're going to talk about um, your approach, which sort of marries the two. Um, But in in term, you know, before we talk about maximum aerobic function, would you, would you, do you have any comments on that? Do you sort of agree with that, that thinking that, you know, maybe before learning how to maximize mitochondrial function and the type one muscle fibers that um, people were pushing themselves in the name of performance uh, and sacrificing their health? At the same time. Oh, sure. That was that was a, a big part of the problem, um, and, and it was the perception. It was what what um, I, I guess I would say it's what we all learned from our 
or early on from our gym teachers, not, not that I'm putting down gym teachers, but that was the trend. Uh, one more, let's do one more rep. Let's do one more lap really hard and don't slow down. You know, um, this is, this is, uh, you know, um, this is running athletes into the ground, running teams into the ground, running them out of competition. That's um, most of these athletes leave their, their best performance on previous um, training uh, routines and, and not on the, the day of competition. So, yeah. And, and, and those, you know, those injuries can be physical as, as we know, but they can also be biochemical. You mentioned the, the hormone imbalance that, uh, women have, but men do too, uh, low testosterone, um, as an example, and the mental, emotional injuries that often come as depression, anxiety, um, and the, the, the miseducation, that's really a mental injury. That's a cognitive problem that people have is they, they're, um, they're made to think a certain way that's wrong. And as a result, they follow through in, in, the, in the wrong path that brings them down a bad, uh, a bad path um, to being unhealthy. Right. And I think it extends to so many, I mean, we could honestly go on a, so many different tangents, but that extends to so many aspects of life. This is why people don't rest. People push mm -hmm. themselves in their businesses until they fall apart. This is why, you know, we don't honor self-care. And I know that that's a bit of a, like, you know, it's a bit of a, uh, we'll say a wishy-washy term, but people don't know how to slow down. People uh, will resist that because it feels like, oh, now I'm being a sloth. Now I'm being lazy. What if I can never pull myself out of this again and be get back into that hustle and grind mode? Yeah. And it's really sad um, that, you know, that has become the trend. And it's interesting that uh, corporate people who burn out, they're sitting at their desks all day and, 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 overworking and overstressing themselves and they're burning out have the same you know mechanisms from the brain down stress mechanisms physical biochemical mental emotional stresses identical to what athletes um experience when they are overtrained now they're they're doing too much physical activity and they're not resting enough the executive is sitting there all day all week um, and, and, you know, stressing himself or herself out in, in a different way, but the result is the same and they both burn out. Um, it's called burnout in corporate, uh, health. It's called overtraining in, in, in sports. So let's, let's talk a little bit about, uh, maximum aerobic function. This is, uh, first, maybe we want to define what is it and then what might be the application, uh, of the MAF test, uh, for someone who's concerned with either health promotion or performance. It, it's, it's interesting. Um, our brain and body is well endowed with an aerobic system. And we never learn about that. We don't learn about it in school. I never learned about it until later on. Um, and, and you didn't see it in the textbooks. I did learn it from uh, McArdle's textbook where he talks about the aerobic system, the slow, um, I forgot, he, he called it the aerobic system or the slow energy, I forgot. 
Um, and it was just sort of a little section in passing. Uh, and I said, oh, this is, this is the missing link. This is, now I'm seeing this thing better because I had this obsessive um, brain where I couldn't look at things in a single format. I had to look at the big picture. I had to look holistically and the aerobic system, the, it, its existence um, really completed the picture quite well or, or helped complete the picture for me um, from a standpoint of, hey, this is what I, A, I want to do for myself and B, my passion is now to help other people and I'm going to use this. And, um, and I did. Humans, humans have always had this from the beginning. Humans have always um, uh, moved slowly uh, we hunted and gathered, but we didn't sprint a whole lot. Once in a while, we got chased by an animal and we had to sprint, but that was um, an, an exception of the day. Um, but we, we used um, this aerobic system to do that. And the fuel for the aerobic system is fat. We burn fat for energy for the aerobic system. And in fact, the aerobic muscles, the aerobic muscle fibers, um, use a lot of fat to obtain a lot of energy. So we could, we could walk around all day long without fatiguing. If we try, tried to sprint all day long, we'd, we'd be exhausted in, in just a few minutes. Um, and we'd be sore the next day, not so with the aerobic system. So the humans have, um, the human body has um, uh, many different muscles that have mixed aerobic and anaerobic fibers and those um unlike certain animals like chickens where they have you know light and dark meat uh the light meat is the anaerobic and those those are like the breast um, um muscles where they use to they use uh those anaerobic muscles to flap their wings which they can't do very well that's why they don't fly much um, they don't technically fly at all um, because those muscles fatigue very quickly, but their leg muscles allows them to walk around and, you know, pick on food all day long without getting tired. Uh, those are the aerobic muscles. And that's what humans have, uh, except in a, in a mixture. All of our muscles or most of our muscles, the jaw joints being the exception, um, you know, we, we can enlist these aerobic muscles so that all day long we've got all the energy we need uh, to do the things we we want to do and in doing so we obtain that energy from fats stored fats we take fat out of storage and convert it to atp and the amount of energy potential energy we have is is astounding uh, yet here we are uh, the most common um, uh, complaint heard by doctors is fatigue. Well, when you don't have the energy, when you can't burn fat, you're going to run out of energy. And if you kick in your sugar burning system, uh, that's pretty limited. So you run out of that quickly as well. And then you're, you're not just fatigued, you're exhausted. Yeah. And I hear this all the time where, um, well, first, I mean, culturally, we see that we all pay attention to anaerobic type activities. Like if you look at the Olympics, you know, back to your point, if you look at the sprints, everyone watches 
you know, the hundred meter sprint, you know, maybe the 200 meter sprint, right? Those are all very much, well, maybe you can even argue that those are, you know, type 2B fibers where you may even be superseding the ATP capacity of the muscle. And you, maybe you're just not even using any energy system there. You're just using the ATP that's stored in the muscle. But you have these anaerobic um, activities that everyone sort of glorifies and, glam, you know, it's like the glammy uh, type of activities. Whereas you're right, like the aerobic type of, uh, as you mentioned, this is more of this beta oxidation fat burning, um, where we have a higher, uh, you know, mitochondrial density, um, because you have to, that's how fats burned. It has to get into the mitochondria. Whereas if you're in a glycolytic state, as you mentioned, it doesn't necessarily need to be burned in the mitochondria necessarily, it can be burnt, you know, you can, you can, through the process of glycolysis, it can be in the cytosol or it can be outside, it can be outside of the mitochondria. And I think that, um, this is really important because I have a lot of women that are like, I don't know why I can't lose weight. Like I'm doing five Peloton classes and I'm not like no shade to Peloton, but like, you know, <laughs> five classes on this bike, my heart rate's like 190. I feel like I've just, you know, it's like, they feel like they're dying and it's like, and I don't know why. And I have all this belly fat and it's like, well, it's because you're not actually burning any fat. You may be burning these type two A and B fibers, which have a higher glycolytic capacity, lower oxidative capacity, but you're not, you know, as you said that these type one fibers, you should be able to walk for hours without tiring, this sort of low level, you know, some people might call it zone one or zone two, uh, training. I know we're going to talk about your formula, um, in a moment. Um, but I think that, that, you know, we've traded generalized low level movement for these very specialized high intensity bursts of activity. And to your point around the, um, you know, the executive, the burnout in the, you know, they'll do, they'll do Peloton in the morning. They'll do some crazy workout oh, for yeah. an hour and then sit for the rest of the day versus yep. walking. You know, I talk about like movement snacks, like instead of going to the fridge for something, take a five minute walk around the block or go up and down the stairs or do, you know, do something that's, you know, you're not breaking out of sweat, but you're moving your body. Yeah. Um, they, they were, I, I suspect they still are uh, recommending these executives who are showing signs and symptoms of burnout that they, they play a hard game of squash, you know, get your frustration out on, on, you know, beating this ball and um, worsening your anaerobic excess state and suppressing your aerobic condition. Um, it's a no pain, no gain world we live in. And that is spread across society. It's not just in sports. In fact, no pain, no gain came from Benjamin Franklin in his descriptions of, um, uh, 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 of business ventures and, uh, and capitalism, basically. And, you know, he said it, we, we, need, to, we need to sweat and, and make it work. And it's, it's hard work and we need to, you know, I don't know that, you know, that he was literal in, in that sense, but that's how it's been taken. And we are well entrenched in that on every level of society, teaching and parenting and, um, of course, sports. And, but it's sad. It's, it's very sad because what we're doing is um, making the population uh, more and more dysfunctional 
Um, and a big part of that is that they're, you know, the population is going into more and more of a aerobic deficiency where they're neglecting this fat burning system and, um, and people are getting um, more and more over fat. More and more over fat. Why is it important for us to maximize aerobic function? Like what is the, what are the downstream benefits of maximizing beta oxidation in, uh, in the muscle? That's how we were built as human beings. You know, in the, in the animal world, there are sprinters like cheetahs who could really run fast, but they don't have much aerobic function. They can't kind of hunt um, uh, at a slow pace all day long. Uh, and then they have animals that just kind of crawl like turtles and um, other, other slower animals. But humans are unique in, in that we have the capacity to do both, but primarily uh, we are aerobic animals. And um, if we don't follow those genetic requirements, we get in trouble. We, we, we don't burn fat, so we store it. If we don't burn fat, we don't take the fat in storage and, and burn it for energy. So now we don't have as much energy and then we get cravings for junk food. And, you know, it, it, the, the brain's affected, the body's affected. Um, our overall human performance is affected adversely and quite quickly as well. So whether we're, we're trying to uh, learn or remember or um, formulate or create whatever we're doing from a human performance standpoint is going to be impaired. And I think as well, when we look at the musculoskeletal system, that's where we actually see metabolic dysfunction show up first, right? When we look at type two diabetics, they, um, you know, they're not able to oxidize fats in the same way that someone who does not have that, or even just metabolic syndrome, you know, you're not quite on the, you know, maybe you don't quite yet have the diagnosis of type two diabetes. These people have a problem oxidizing uh, their fats. Yeah. Yeah. And it's not just the diabetics who, who we, we would know years before they became diabetic that they were headed that way. Um, um, but we're talking about pretty much um, all the chronic illnesses um, and, and, of course, the, the overfat condition, which is the combination of uh, overweight, obesity, and the people who are not overweight but still have excess body fat. Those are the ones typically with um, too much belly fat. Um, and then those downstream problems, those are all uh, results of poor aerobic function. And this is not a difficult thing to measure uh, in the laboratory or in a, in a, in a facility that has a, a, a treadmill um, test where you can measure the, um, the amount of oxygen uh, uptake and carbon dioxide output. And then from that, you get the percent of fat burning and sugar burning at different heart rates. And what you see is in some of these people, even walking at a very slow pace, even they're doing the physical things that they think they should be doing, training slow, um, and they still can't burn fat because their, their metabolism is, um, is screwed up. And so, um, there's a lot that has to be done with, with 
a lot of these people that um, have metabolical metabolic um, problems, um, um, and and by by fixing that, we then can start burning fat and um, and then health health returns and fitness builds as well. So if we've determined that we want to maximize our aerobic capacity, our aerobic efficiency, maybe through increasing the, you know, the cross-sectional density of our type one fibers, let's, I want to talk about your concept of, um, maximum aerobic heart rate. Um, I'm, you know, now we sort of, it's just like, oh, 180 minus your age. Like that's the, you know, it's, it's such a simple thing that anybody can do, but I, I'm, I'm curious about how you um, determine what a maximum aerobic heart rate is for an individual. Before you came up with that formula, what was the process for you in your uh, clinical process that would help you come up with that number? Well, I knew there were athletes who were um, performing well and um, trained well, and then those who, who didn't. Um, and, and so I started looking at what are the features of um, a healthier athlete versus one who's not healthy? And, um, and then started looking at heart rate. This is before heart monitors really came out. Um, I did use a, a, a cardiac strap that, um, that picked up the heart rate. And so I could accurately see what someone's heart rate was. And I started comparing heart rates with gait heart rates with breathing rates, heart rate with um, how people felt. And I, I, I saw, for example, that as the heart rate went up as they were running, that um, their gait would become a little more irregular the higher the heart rate got. And so I, I interpreted that as a stress. This is a stress. A heart rate of 150 for this person is a stress and it, it impairs their gait. And you'd see what, like more pronation, more weirdness with propulsion. Like what would you see in terms of your, or. I, in the beginning, it was very subtle. And, and I had, I had learned a, a lot about posture and gait. It was a big thing for me. And so to see subtle changes in gait was not that hard. And what I did literally in the beginning was, um, uh, bring a bunch of uh, runners um, and walkers to a high school track. And I would watch them go round and round. And I would kind of run back and forth. Sometimes I'd run with them and, and I would take notes. Who's doing what? What's your heart rate? And, um, and it, it, it was pretty obvious. After a while, um, uh, you can see these subtle changes and sometimes you'll see people recover from an irregular gait by slowing down. Um, and so, you know, it's a, it's a, it, the best way to think of it is, is stress. It's a stress. So what does the body do under stress? Well, it doesn't have the, the same uh, neuromuscular balance. So there, there becomes this neuromuscular imbalance and, that's where the gait irregularity comes from. Um, and then they breathe faster. Um, it's hard to ask them how they're feeling because it's quite subjective. Um, and, and, but, but 
you, you can see it in their faces. Um, you know, once they get to a heart rate that's um, far enough over that nice place to be that I, I call it a nice place to be. Um, and I realized that that nice place right before their gait became irregular, that I want to keep them just below that because as they run, they fatigue even aerobically. We fatigue all day long and it's not a problem because it's not so severe and we recover by the next day if we're healthy. Um, so I wanted to, I wanted to be conservative and, and, and have that heart rate a little bit lower. And then I realized that this is, this is amazing because over time, what I started seeing is that, um, people were getting faster at the same heart rate. And I thought that's a, that's a, you know, they must be burning more fat. That's what I assumed. And I thought this would be a good test for, um, for weight loss. We want to make sure people are burning fat. Let's do, you know, they could walk or jog. And, and um, if they get faster at the same heart rate, then we know they're on the right metabolic pathway to lose body fat. Well, that certainly is true. But the, the fact that they got faster at the same heart rate was a huge thing for me from a coaching standpoint, because my goal with an athlete was to uh, a help them perform better and b keep them healthy, and that was that was a big a big key to that. Yeah, and I, I that's what I think really excites me about that is that you can you know if we're talking about in the context of running, you can get faster. So you might start at I don't know a ten minute mile, let's say. And you have a certain heart rate. Like if we're doing, you know, if I were to plug in my age and all the particulars, my number would be 136. It's like 180 minus your age. I don't have any over, I'm not recovering from any illnesses right now. You know, I don't, I don't get sick, uh, you know, ever. Um, I don't have asthma. I'm not over fat, all those things. So my number would be 136. So what excites me about that is that staying at 136 I can go from, let's say a 10 minute mile to a nine, nine and a half minute mile. And then I can progress to a nine minute mile, you know, et cetera. Um, I don't, I'm not a big runner. Actually, I have a lateral trainer, which is, um, it's kind of like an elliptical, but instead of going in the sagittal plane, it's in the coronal plane. So it's almost like you're skating um, because I'm a really big fan of coronal plane exercises in general. I don't think we do enough of them. So anyway, so I have this, I have this, and my, um, machine has a wattage, like it'll tell me how many Watts I'm pushing. So I am always trying to say, okay, can I, you know, can I do 130 Watts and stay at 136? And then can I continue to progress? Can I do more? Can I increase the intensity um, of the output, but maintain the same heart rate? And that's what I think is so exciting about this, because as you increase your mitochondrial density, your capacity for beta oxidation, um, then you are your fat burning capacity, which is what we want when it comes to weight loss. Like we always use the term weight loss, but you don't want to lose brain mass or your bone mass or your organ mass. You want to lose adipose tissue. Right. We're going to, we're going to talk about right. why that's important in, in a moment, but 
that that is the you know it's this low and slow idea like less is more that I want I really want to make sexy because everyone wants to do like the crazy they want to be running at full thing with like a 45 pound plate on the treadmill for Instagram. And it's like, this is not how we, this is not how you train. This is not how anybody trains. It's hard to make it sexy because (laughs) we're, we're, we're going the other way from no pain, no gain and no pain, no gain is the ultimate sexy thing. And that's why it's so popular. Right. Um, And when you say to somebody, um, I want you to, to work out slowly, I want you to get on that stationary bike and pedal really slow and don't exceed this heart rate. Um, they laugh. And when you have a competitive athlete who, who is used to training, you know. Oh, your uh, ego gets messed up in this. Yeah, the ego yeah. is really, yeah. really tough. And it's, mm-hmm. you know, and I, I've said to more than one athlete that, you know, um, because I know what, what they think. Oh, I'm going to be out there on the road running slow. What are people going to think? And I would say, well, you know, train at night. Right. You know, go on a tre- stay at home on your Get treadmill. Get a treadmill. Yeah. Don't, don't, yeah. Nobody will see you. We won't tell anybody. So once you, once you determine the proper, so you determine the heart rate that you should be training at in order to maximize fat burning capacity. How do you, so when you determine the intensity that's appropriate, how the, how do you uh, determine what volume of aerobic training is, is appropriate? I'm always, I find I'm always dialing people back. So I'm always bringing people away, like step away from the bike, step away from the five times a week in the, you know, in terms of classes, what, how do you, how do you prescribe volume for someone? Yeah, it's hard. It depends on the person. It depends on um, m- most importantly, it depends on their lifestyle. What, what do they have going on? Do they have um, a family, you know, with three kids and a lot of social responsibilities? And, um, and do, they, do they work, you know, 40, 50 hours a week, 60 hours a week? Um, and if they do, are they able to train 100 miles a week because they're running a marathon because that's what so-and-so said years ago and all the magazines say well you have to run 100 miles a week to run your well that's you know that's that's a, a disservice they're providing because that individual will burn out even at at aerobic training at the right level um at 100 miles a week because um that that can't be maintained um and so you have to look at, at that and put, you know, fit their training into their life, their, their lifestyle. And that's not easy to do either because um, the, the, the idea is that we have, we have our life here in our families and our work. And, and then we train, this is, we're trying to train over here. And so you have people doing things like getting up at 4 a.m. to get their workout in. Uh, and, and as a result, lose an hour or two of sleep every night. Well, that's ridiculous because they actually get stronger with the more sleep, the more rest they get. But you can't rationalize that. They want to, they, they have this hundred miles or whatever the, the number is for, for runners or for cyclists. Or, so I, 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 I take the, 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 the distance out of the 
the picture for them. I say, look, I'd like you to train by time, not by miles. So with your schedule, it looks like you could do um, an hour of running five days a week and one day of a longer workout. And I don't care how many miles it is. If it's a runner, you know, there's no preconceived idea that you you have to do this or that. And so um, don't even think about how many miles you're going. You're, you're training for an hour. You're going to warm up slowly. You're going to maintain that. And then you're going to cool down. And after an hour, you're done. Simple. Um, uh, and, and, and that's a hard concept as well, but that's the, the training routine I had. And, um, I, 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 I found the same thing you did is that most people want to do more. Uh, they, they're, they're training slower and they say, well, if I'm training slower, I, I need to add more training time. And of course that's not true. So it's a, it's a tough sell all around. And I had a hard time in the beginning. Sodium is an essential nutrient involved in the maintenance of normal cellular balance, the regulation of fluid and electrolytes, and your blood pressure. Start your morning right with a refreshing, salty tonic of LMNT. It's spring season now, which means I will be enjoying watermelon or grapefruit salt on ice, and it is a fabulous way to balance stress hormones and make sure that I am maximizing my muscle gains. Element T also has a no questions asked refund policy. Try watermelon or any flavor that you want. And if you don't like it, they will refund your money. No questions asked. And you don't even need to return the box. Head over to drinklmnt.com forward slash Dr. Estima. That's D-R-I-N-K-L-M-N-T.com forward slash D-R-E-S-T-I-M-A. And you will get a free Element sample pack with any purchase. I think um, the other thing that I've uh, that I try to counsel people on, and I've noticed this in my own uh, observations around my heart rate. There comes a point. Let's say I'm back to my 136 example. I'm training at 136. My watts are 120, or you know, you're running at a certain pace. And then there comes a point in that workout where my heart rate, I lose control of it. Like I, ju- it just starts to kind of get all over the place. Like it's going up to 144, and then it's coming back down to 132, and then that's the point where I, that's the point where I stop. So that for me, um, I try to look at heart rate. Um, as a, I, I try to, I try to use heart rate as a predictor of time. Like once I start losing control of that 136, where it's like, it's going up to 144 or whatever it is. And I'm trying to, you know, use my, <laughs> my parasympathetic breathing to like kind of bring down my heart rate again. And I, I it keeps doing that. I'm sort of fighting with it. That's when I call it. Um, because then yeah, that's that, a good, that's a good point. And that's, that's what's happening. You're, you're not, um, what technically what's happening is you're fatiguing. And, and uh, in fact, if you, if you just uh, work out um, for 30 minutes, you're fatigued and you'll notice that fatigue because you're going to have to slow down. After 45 minutes, you're going to have to slow down a little more. And after an hour, you're going to have to slow down even more. And so um, using the heart rate takes into account the fatigue mechanism and you have to adapt to that by slowing down. And as a result, you're going to get more out of your workout. But the, the, the big thing is that 
you know, by by strictly adhering to this, and this is what people do naturally, um, unless they're exposed to all the social um, uh, traditions of no pain, no gain, for example. Uh, when people are left on their own, and I've seen a few athletes uh, in my career who have sort of been, you know, not exposed to all this stuff. They were kind of novices maybe, or they were, they were in another sport and then they came into, into running or cycling and um, they just did things naturally. And I was really pleasantly surprised to see that, but most people um, have a hard time with it, but when they do it right um, and they start getting, better, they start getting faster, um, they, they suddenly realize that they're, <laughs> they're going much faster than they were before. Now, they're going faster than they used to train when their heart rate was 180, now it's 140. Um, and, and now, gee, all of a sudden, I'm having a hard time keeping up with my heart rate because it wants to slow down. And, and, and now they've gone from complaining they're training too slow to complaining they have to train too fast. And that could take a year or so or, or longer, depending on how disciplined they are. But that's always fun to see because it's, you know, it's an indication that they're succeeding. Um, it's an indication that the system is working and the human body is cooperating and so forth. And so do you ever, when you, when you have a situation like that, where someone, I, I mean, I might, maybe this is the incorrect terminology, but I would call that a plateau where someone is now, you know, they've been working at a certain heart rate, they're able to go faster and now they have to work. Um, is there, well, maybe I'll, is there ever a point where you would increase the heart rate as they sort of have reached their maximal speed or their, or, or is that, that never happens? I would increase the heart rate if we've reduced it because they were um, unhealthy. So if they're on medication, for example, we'd reduce that training heart rate by 10, which is a lot, I know, but that's the way it is. And, and so now if, if we, you know, we're going on six months and they've been able to, been able to um, eliminate um, their high blood pressure medication or whatever, um, we might um, move that heart rate up uh, or if they've had a lot of injuries uh, and now they're, they've been injury free for six months or whatever, uh, we, we might increase that. But I think mostly what you're referring to is the fact that the aerobic system makes a lot of progress over the months. And at some point it will hit a, a, a high peak of performance and that would be the place where we could add anaerobic training if that's what the the athlete wants to do let's let's talk about uh nutrition um and the impact that it may have on uh the individual's ability to use fat as fuel while exercising and specifically i'd love to ask you about your thoughts on uh, macronutrient uh composition i know you talk about uh, carbohydrate intolerance as we age um, but what, what are your thoughts on the macronutrient composition of a diet influencing um, an individual's ability to use fat as fuel? Well, the, the diet has more of an impact on the ability to burn fat than exercise does. Uh, 
So if you do all the right things with your training, if you're using your heart, if you've got the correct heart rate for your needs, and if you're going out and you're very careful not to exceed that heart rate and you're warming up and cooling down and you're not um, exceeding a, a volume that interferes with your, your lifestyle and all that stuff. If you do all the right things, but you're eating badly, nothing is going to happen. You may, you may even get worse. Uh, any, any junk food. So any processed food, any, um, um, any food that's uh, not nutrient natural, natural or nutrient dense. Um, and when I talk about this, I could almost hear people think, well, I don't eat any junk food. And that's, that's a problem because they are eating a lot of junk food. In fact, people who say I'm not eating any junk food are often eating more junk food than natural food. And that's because they don't understand what junk food really is. Um, they don't, you know, just because that bread says whole wheat doesn't mean it's whole grain bread. It's junk food. Almost all bread is junk food. And um, most packaged foods are junk food. Most of the food you get in, a, um, in most restaurants is junk food. In most cafeterias, it's junk food. And um, the amount of sugar in food is, it, it, it's incredible. Uh, you, you can't buy packaged food anymore that doesn't have sugar or something that turns to sugar very quickly, like a starch or, um, you know, a, a, a flour or whatever, processed, um, processed grains. Um, you know, people say, well, I, I have oatmeal for breakfast every morning and that, that's healthy, right? No, it's junk food. If it takes you five minutes to cook your oatmeal, it's junk food. It takes 45 minutes to cook real oatmeal. And most people have never had that. And so um, we need to, to, to take, a, and I do it all the time. We need to take a look at what we're eating because manufacturers are very sneaky. Uh, and they'll take a product that's been free of sugar and junk food, and then suddenly start adding junk food because their surveys say, you know, people are not eating this as much anymore because they don't feel it's tasty enough. Well, tasty means we need to add sugar. And so we need to keep up with all that, all that we're, we're, we're buying uh, because manufacturers are certainly keeping up with our tastes through, um, through their own market research. Yeah. And there's so many different names for sugar. It's not just sugar. You know, they have all these beautiful sort of, you know, enticing names, right? Like agave and, you know, all these different, <laughs> but at the end of the day, it's, it's sugar. It's, you know, and many it's times it's fructose, right? And that, which is, causes its own. Yeah. Of sugar is sugar. And, and people, people say, oh, well, I don't eat sugar. I don't eat any sugar. Um, well, that bagel you're having, that you cut in half and you don't want to put any um, cream cheese on it because that's fat and I have too much fat. Um, one half of that bagel turns to fat. That's what carbohydrates, refined carbohydrates do. They break down, turn to sugar, and half of it is used for energy 
uh, quickly, uh, and the other half is stored as fat. And because you're storing that much fat, you're producing insulin, which is preventing you from burning stored fat uh, later on in the day. What about, what are your thoughts on um, seed oils and emulsifiers? Because these are also, I think, sneaky little um, uh, remnants that they put in, in food. Well, seed oils, you know, people think, oh, it's a vegetable oil. It's a vegetable, must be good. You know, it's like yeah, sunflower. Vegetables, <laughs> vegetables are good, right? So the oil must be amazing. Meanwhile, of course, very highly unstable, uh, highly oxidizable, which can, you know, cause rampant amounts of inflammation um, in the body. Um, and then the other piece is emulsifiers. Cause I have people that'll say, oh, I'm keto, you know, I have a bar, uh, you know, I have a protein bar, I have this. And it's like, well, if you look at the ingredients, yes, you're going to have some protein, you're going to have fat, but you're also going to see things like soy lecithin, all these emulsifiers that absolutely disrupt the gut microbiome causes some of the receptors in the microbiome to actually retreat like the satiety receptors to retreat further into the mucosa so that you're, you're not full. And you know, how many, how many people feel like I've, you know, I've had protein bars, I've had keto bar. I don't feel full after I have them. I eat, I can eat them way too quickly, like two bites and it's, you know, done. And I don't, I don't feel satisfied after I find like 45 minutes. I'm sort of like, what else can I, I need something else right now. Yeah, most most so-called energy bars are 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 junk food. You know, ninety nine percent of them. I, I haven't followed that market anymore because it, it's really quite disgusting. But most energy bars are junk food. Um, and as far as the oils go, um, <coughs> excuse me. I gosh, I think the first time I. I mean, this is old old information, but. It's a good example of how uh, manufacturers feed us so many lies that we're, we're, we're hearing the lies so much that we start believing it. And so we avoid butter, we avoid coconut oil, we avoid things that are natural fats, um, and instead go to what sounds um, sexy, vegetable oils, you know, polyunsaturated oils you know this and it's not just the manufacturers the government is telling us to do that because the government is lobbied by the manufacturers um, and so it's really a sad situation and we're kind of on our own we we need to we need to shop with all of these things in mind and it's really really hard it's a lot easier today man it used to be um that you'd, you'd, you'd pick up a package of something and it would say, no sugar added. Well, the rules back then were that if you, the manufacturer, is making this product and you buy some raw material from somebody and that raw material has sugar in it, you could still say no sugar added. And, you know, people say, oh, well, that doesn't happen today. Well, that particular example doesn't because they've changed the laws, but they are equally sleazy in their, in their marketing. And so we, we need to think, we need to understand what, what junk food really is. Um, junk food is anything that's not natural. And um, I, I, I think I have an article called what really is junk food or something. And I go through a lot of this, but it's, it's, um, 
you know, we, we need to better understand. People need to get their nutrition from um, uh, better sources than the media. That's what's been happening in really quite a few years. Yeah, I, I remember, um, who was I speaking to? I think we were actually talking about psychedelics. It was um, Jason uh, Prawl, and he was saying that, um, I can't remember how we got on, on the uh, topic, but he was saying, you know, places like China or Mexico, you know, when they turn on the news, they know that it's propaganda. Like they know that they're being fed crap. The problem with North Americans is that we actually think we call it journalism, you know? So we think that the media is like, has our best interests at heart. But of course you've, you've probably seen memes. I've seen them where it's like sponsored by Pfizer, sponsored by, you know, they're all these conglomerate, like the media is just an arm often of big food and big pharma. And uh, they will tell you what they want you to know, not what the, what necessarily the truth is. And I'd rather tell tell you what, yeah, they'll tell you what their sponsors want you to know, because that's who pays the bills. And this was the, this was the problem with um, a lot of the sports magazines, you know, the running magazines would tell you how wonderful junk food was and that we needed to eat more junk food if we want to run faster and that we need to buy really bad shoes. I mean, really uh, well-advertised shoes. Uh, if we want to run, you know, it's like, uh, who, who has these editorial meetings? And it's, the, it's really the advertisers that run the show. Well, I, re- I remember just this past year, um, they did Euro 2020 in, you know, or yeah, 2020 and 21. And um and Cristiano Ronaldo at the end of one of his games came down. I don't know if you saw this, but he came down for a press conference, you know, speaking about his win or loss. I forget which one it was for Portugal. And he came to the uh, press junket and in front of him was a bottle of Coke. And he looked at the Coke and he literally took it and put it out of the screen. Like, you know, Coke is the spon- one of the sponsors of Euro uh, 2020, which begs the question, why the hell is Coke a sponsor? Like no athlete drinks Coke. Anyway, so he takes the two things of Coke and he goes, agua, you know, like water, <laughs> you know, it's like, that's what I drink. And it's like, and so, you know, of course there was all these ramifications, like Coke stock plummeted. And then they started changing all these rules, like no athlete can touch any of the sponsorship things, but it's like, why the F? Why, uh, why in God's name, why do we have Coke as a sponsor for, a, for a sporting event? Like Cristiano Ronaldo is an elite athlete. He's not putting that shit in his body. There's no way. They, yeah. The, the sponsors run the show. They're, they're, they're putting the money in and they feel they could do anything they want, unfortunately. And, and, um, um, and, and, you know, event, event people say, well, yeah, let's get more sponsors and, and, you know, display. I mean, they're still doing the same things in, uh, in movies and TV shows with cigarettes, for example. You know, we were supposed to get rid of cigarettes. Well, we never really did. The, the number of cigarettes sold today are way higher than there ever was. And, and so, you know, the, the junk food industry has really followed the same model as the tobacco industry, but they're more successful because um, they're, they're, they're not being beat up as much as the tobacco industry was and still is, but um, we still have tobacco. It's still a serious problem. Um, but um, the, the junk food companies, big sugar, as I call them, and 
um, the scientific community is now saying that um, sugar is the new tobacco. And so that's good to see. But people, again, people have a distortion. They don't, you know, because they don't put sugar in their coffee, they say, I don't, I don't eat sugar, when in fact, they're eating a, a lot of sugar. And, um, and so it's a, it's a, it's a crazy world. And this is, uh, you know, we, we battle this all the time. And I have from the beginning, and it's really, you know, back in the 70s, it was really, it was really hard to, to make a lot of the statements I've made today, because they would beat you up over it. And I would kind of have to let that happen, because I stood my ground. And um, just just the idea of running slow to get fast, what, you know, what kind of nonsense is that? <laughs> right, right. <laughs> but then when some of those, you know, athletes started winning, um, people started paying attention to those crazy training ideas. Talk a little bit about your two-week test, because I think that this is, um, you've written about this on uh, on your uh, website, which we'll make sure we'll, we'll link to some of the articles that um, that we've been referencing here as well, as well as some of your blog posts. Um, but I think that this is important because, you know, on this idea of sugar, as we age, there are, um, we become, particularly in our muscles, we become more anabolic. There's more resistance to growth, right? So you need to overcome that with like a higher protein bolus, for example. But with carbohydrates, uh, we, we, well, I think naturally we become more insulin intolerant. We become uh, less sensitive to insulin as we age. So talk a little bit about how we might uh, improve our insulin sensitivity so that we are getting the energy into the cell so that it can create um, ATP. Yeah, we, we, um, we're seeing a very serious problem um, at, at, you know, years ago in the beginning, I, I would say people get more insulin resistant as they age, you know, referring to people who were 40 and 50. And, you know, at that point, we may need to reduce our natural carbohydrate intake. Um, but what's happened is we are becoming more and more insulin resistant at younger and younger ages. And an example, uh, uh, an obvious example is the fact that we're seeing children with type two diabetes. And then they would say, oops, I guess we can't call it adult onset diabetes anymore because 12 year olds now have it. Um, and so um, this is the result of uh, feeding babies junk food mothers eating junk food when they're when they're pregnant um and babies are born now with a really poor insulin mechanism with you know being insulin resistant and so uh we start feeding them things that they um that worsen insulin resistance like junk food uh makes makes things worse much faster so it's not that we have to worry about becoming insulin resistant as we age is that we need to find out now how insulin resistant we are. And to have that tested is makes no sense at all because it doesn't tell you anything other than you're, you know, a certain degree of, 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 of insulin resistant and that, you know, ha having some numbers doesn't matter. What do you do with that information? And so 
very early on, my my dietary recommendations were to um, start reducing. Uh, first, the the standard recommendation was to eliminate junk food. Then reduce um, uh, things uh, that that you know. In the very beginning, I would you know have them reduce sugar you know slowly reduce the sugar until there's there's no sugar intake and because people had a hard time going cold turkey and I, you know i i finally realized that that didn't make sense we needed to go cold turkey if you're destroying your body let's stop doing that right away um and then we would gradually kind of juggle the macronutrients you know let's let's increase protein or let's increase fat and let's do, and I realized that was just too tedious. Let's go cold turkey. Um, the, the most important macronutrient uh, to, to do this with is carbohydrate because it has an immediate impact on our metabolism. So my idea was to let, let's, let's bring the carbohydrates way down to a low level, make up the macronutrient um, calories with protein and fat and let's see how you feel and let's let's say okay this person has fatigue they're not they're waking up in the middle of the night they you know have have you know they're depressed um they get um um shaky before meals they get tired after meals whatever let's take all of the symptoms and if i have some signs like high blood pressure uh you know, let's consider all of that. And let's now let's lower the carbohydrate, um, increase the protein and fat, and let's see what happens uh, with your signs and symptoms. Well, it was amazing. In, in a short period of time, I thought 10 days would be enough, but it, sometimes it, it, it was a little tricky and it took a little longer and I eventually ended up with two weeks and this is a this is a food challenge, and so I called it the two week test, where we we want to test this person's metabolic state. How do you feel when your carbohydrates are here? And if you feel much better, and some of these people would say, "Well, I feel like a new person. All these symptoms went away. My blood pressure's down, um, and and." Um, this was a learning tool that was very valuable. I didn't, I didn't want people, I, I wanted people to rationalize how to eat better, but I wanted them to feel it. And there's no better way to help somebody than let them feel what it's like to feel good. And then we can go from there. And then after the two week test, we might put back some of the natural carbohydrates and, and sometimes that was too much for people. And so now they know their level of tolerance. They know they can't exceed a certain amount of natural carbohydrate intake. And as the years would go on, they would have to diminish the fruit intake or the, the diminish other um, natural carbohydrates that uh, at one time they could tolerate, but they, can't now because they're 50 or 60 years old. Um, and, and, and that, that's sort of how animals do it. It's a very intuitive, instinctual thing. And, uh, we can do the same thing with symptoms. I love that. 
And I wanted to, uh, I wanted to make sure that we touch on over fat. So you've said it a few times, uh, just, and you, you know, um, to distinguish this from being overweight, let's determine, let's, let's sort of define the term over fat. And then what are some of the metabolic consequences of someone who is over fat? And I wanted to, you know, pair this with some of your observations. Uh, you know, I was talking to you in the pre-chat and I was like, I want to talk a little bit about how this affects outcomes, um, in COVID and uh, with the pandemic. So let's, let's talk a little bit about what overfat is, what are some of the consequences, metabolic and otherwise? Um, I think there's an immune, like it sort of affects everything, but what are some of the, what are some of the consequences of having excess adiposity? I started using the word overfat um, many, many years ago. I saw it in a, in a journal and I thought, well, this is, this is a, a, a much more, um, this is a better term, uh, except they used, they had two words over fat. Um, and as you know, the word fat is a very touchy word, um, for people. And so, um, it's also a macronutrient, which I think messes people up. <laughs> you know, I was like, if yeah, I eat this macronutrient, an I'm going yeah, yeah. yeah. And it's essential. We're, there are essential fatty acids that we we can't survive without. Uh, humans in the beginning had a diet that was mostly fat, not a lot of protein, and of course not much, uh, if any, carbohydrate. Um, so um, I started writing about overfat in my in my books, um, and eventually I don't remember when uh, several years ago um, wrote a paper on defining overfat, underfat, and defined what overfat was. Um, and, and I defined it as um, excess body fat that impairs health and fitness, which means we, we need a certain amount of body fat. There's a range of normal for body fat that we all have to have. It's a very important metabolic organ for us. Uh, we use it for our immune system. We use it for thermal regulation. We use it for energy, of course. Fertility. Uh, fertility. Uh, so there's so many benefits of, of body fat, healthy body fat. And, um, and as I was putting all this together, I, I thought, let's, let's see what information is out there. Um, and there are, there are percentage ranges that I don't want to get into because people are confused by that. Um, but it's, it's, it's not that less is better. The right amount is what you want. And, and, and I'll tell you how people can, can determine whether they're over fat or not. Um, but I, I, I estimated the world prevalence of over fat at 76%. Globally. Yeah. And, and I thought, wow, that's, that's a hard sell. Maybe I should lower. <laughs> <laughs> it's like everyone, everyone is the problem. <laughs> and, and, and I got some comments from, from other scientists, you know, th th those numbers are kind of high. And several years later, as I'm seeing more studies come out that are referencing that paper, um, and now I had done, um, uh, you know, what percentage of overfat p 
people are there in the U.S. I showed that 91% of adults were overfed in the U.S. I showed that 80% of adults in India were overfed um, and other areas of the world. And then I realized, and, and finally one more paper came out that, that kind of confirmed my suspicions, which was <clears throat> it's much worse than we think. As bad as those numbers are, it's much worse than we think based on what other scientists are now coming up with. And so I wrote a paper called, paper called Revising the Overfat Pandemic or something like that. And I, I, re, I realized that we can define overfat as um, people who are overweight, people who are, plus people who are obese, plus uh, 20 to 40% of normal weight people. That's a pretty terrible situation that we've gotten ourselves into because of the marketing of junk food. And that's really what's causing this. And it's a hard sell. Fat is a hard sell. Uh, people want to avoid it. People don't you know, they deny having too much. They, um, or they, they say, well, I accept my excess body fat. Uh, this is, this is me. Sorry, that, that, that doesn't work. That's not rational. Um, it's a problem. It's a health problem. It's a metabolic problem. It's a physical, biochemical, and mental, emotional problem. And it's preventable and it's, treatable successfully. So the big question is how do you know if you're over fat? You can get a DEXA scan, I don't recommend it because if you're gonna get one, you have to have another one to see if you're getting better. And there's no reason to have that exposure and pay that expense um, to come up with a, a number when there's a pretty much equally um, uh, excellent assessment tool and that's measuring the waist <coughs> and the height, the, the, the waist to height ratio um, is a very good indicator of um, being over fat. You want your waist to be less than half your height. And if it's not, you're over fat, right. period. Yeah. And if, you, if you're looking to cheat on that, uh, I suggest you do it in the morning because you're a little taller. Your spine's a little longer after a night's sleep. The discs um, are a little fuller. Yep. Yeah. So, mm -hmm. you, you know, you can cheat a little bit, but um, don't play but games. But it's not going to change it that much. Like I, no. I ran my waist to height. I was 0.41. Um, but like, I can't imagine how much tall, like it's going to be, I don't know, how, how much can I expect to be taller first thing in the morning? And it, it's sort of is as soon as you stand up, you're sort of, you know, the discs are subject to gravity as they ever, are. You know. But if you measure this, you know, if you get, with an architectural ruler, measure the spine or just measure somebody's height um, in the course of a day. And then first thing in the morning, sometimes you'll see um, a half inch difference. Um, that's not common. Um, and any kind of, um, <clears throat> Any kind of uh, therapy, uh, you know, hands-on therapy that is successful 
results in people getting taller because their muscles get balanced and their spine lengthens and they get taller. And you can see, you could see that half inch sometimes in the course of uh, before and after treatment. Or even Um, their ability to activate certain muscles as well will be augmented after. Yeah, Yeah, that's true. (coughs) So So what about under fat? Is there, so is there, is there, you know, if you're trying to get under 0.5 when we're looking at waist to height, is there a lower level to that as well? There really isn't. I've tried to see if there was, there's really no research that I'm aware of that's, that's credible to say this is, you know, the range of, of normal uh, waist to height ratio, low normal to high normal. I've not seen that. Um, Mostly under fat is something you, you can determine uh, either with a DEXA scan or, um, you know, some of the good uh, body fat percentages, and you can see the the ranges of normal um, in, in your situation. Um, but but low ab, under fat is something we see in a very unhealthy person, or uh, as as we talked about earlier, in an overtrained person. They 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 overtrain on the one hand, and then on the other hand, they undereat. In particular, they undereat fat um, because eating fat makes you fat. So we think which is untrue. Um, and under fat is a very serious um, problem. We see it a lot in, um, um, uh, in cancer patients, um, in, in, in cachexia, for example. Um, although <coughs> um, sarcopenia is often associated with overfat as we lose a lot of muscle we impair metabolism and we, we start gaining body fat. Right. And you have that fatty infiltration of the muscle as well. So how does this impact outcomes in something like a viral infection? So of course the viral infection that has captured the world, the most famous one uh, right now would be COVID-19 and it's many Greek alphabet variants. Um, How do we, um, how does being over fat um, and I, I have a, you know, I have a, a certain thoughts around how it happens, but how does it impact our ability to fight off a respiratory illness? Well, what, what being overfat does, it, we have to look at the trickle down effect of being overfat. What are the, what are the end results of that condition? One of them is that we increase the risk of chronic disease, heart disease, cancer, diabetes, um, Alzheimer's, all these things are secondary to problems like chronic inflammation, which is secondary to excess body fat. That's number one. Uh, another is that we, we are more vulnerable to physical impairments, not just um, athletic injuries, but um, um, m- more serious physical uh, impairments, um, arthritis and um, and, and that kind of thing. But what also happens with overfat, because the immune system is so well involved with normal body fat, when that normal body fat is now abnormal, um, our immune system is impaired. And so now we're vulnerable to infections. It's really that simple. Right. 
And I was listening to uh, Dr. Robert McCullough, who's um, uh, just re- been at the forefront of this whole, you know, pandemic and some of the things that are maybe going awry um, with these metabolic distortions. And in the adipose tissue, of course, uh, we have, uh, we used to think that it was just sort of this like benign, jiggly white stuff, right? Sometimes brown. Uh, but it, you know, we have this secretion of interleukin-6, right? So you are always, if you have excess adiposity, you always have this sort of low-level chronic low-grade inflammation vis-a-vis this increase in interleukin-6, which is a pro-inflammatory cytokine. So now you have this spike protein, you have this respiratory illness that now is able to, um, you know, induce these, you know, the infamous now cytokine storms. And part of that, I think, is mediated with the adipose tissue secreting, you know, copious amount. If you get, if the, if the virus infiltrates, um, uh, uh, the adipose tissue, you will have copious amounts of release of this particular interleukin-6, which then can, you know, propagate this big cytokine storm, which, you know, is basically your immune system, you know, going AWOL. Yeah, I have a paper called The Perfect Storm, <clears throat> referring to that, because what, what we have actually is the chronic inflammatory state, which is typical of overfat, and then we have the acute inflammation, which is associated with infections. And, um, and that's, a, that's a very important feature. And I'm, I'm writing a new paper, which should be published soon, on COVID and this whole idea. And basically, I'm saying that COVID is not a pandemic. COVID is a problem that is best referred to as a syndemic. A syndemic is a holistic way of looking at things. A syndemic is you look at this COVID pandemic over here, it's one isolated condition, which it's not. And you say, oh, wait a minute. There's this other pandemic called the overfat pandemic, which has set up the entire population to develop COVID. And it's a it's an interesting thing that, again, we, we tend to dumb down uh, things in the society. We want to, you know, it's the medical model, really. Uh, there's a bug that attacks you and we've got a drug to attack the bug. Well, w- w- we know that doesn't work. We've seen what bacteria do to antibiotics, for example. Um, and in, in this case, um, you know, we're, we're trying out vaccines thinking, well, well that's going to save the day. Well, it hasn't. We didn't develop herd immunity from um, COVID exposure the first year. And now that we've had vaccines for a while, we haven't developed herd immunity as a result of, of vaccines. In fact, a lot of people who've been vaccinated properly haven't responded and have gotten sick. And the, the reason they don't respond is because even vaccines need a relatively healthy immune system to work right. And um, giving vaccines to just everybody as a blanket therapy is just really silly. First of all, we don't have enough vaccines for everybody. Second, a lot of people who have all these downstream effects of being overfat impairs their ability to respond to a vaccine. 
Right. And so, that's, I've always wondered why, and it's, you know, maybe there's some, you know, political malingering here, but I think that there, like, why has that only ever been presented as the only option? Like I have yet to hear one elected official talking about going outside, getting some sunshine and going for just doing some low level activity in the way that we've been talking about. And I think that part of it is because that's a really hard, as you were saying, it's a really hard sell when you have 91% of the population and you're like, listen, 91% of you, y'all have to, you know, y'all have to do something. You have to get up and walk. You know, I think that that's really, um, I mean, first that, that elected official won't get back elected again, because it's, you know, it's difficult to tell the entire electorate that, you know, what you, the way that you have, you know, this is like WALL-E, you know, that movie WALL-E where all the, they have to leave earth and they're sitting in these, you know, they're all the, this obese population um, is, you know, just driving themselves everywhere. I mean, that's literally what I think we have. And nobody's willing to, nobody's willing to say, listen, you guys have to, you have to build some muscle. You know, it's like you have this overfat, under-muscled, you know, population that's sedentary, that doesn't have, like, I haven't heard anybody talk about that. It's only been, you need the vaccine, no matter what, the kids need the vaccines, no matter what. And if you don't get it, then you're some, even if you've had natural exposure to the virus, where now you have your own naturally, like you have natural immunity, which now, I mean, it's a whole other conversation where that's not even considered to be on par with vaccination. It's like you, even yeah, if you've been it, exposed it, it, to it, it's like you have to get vaccinated. And I don't yeah, understand. Yeah, it's sad that. because because they're not even basing things on physiology. They're basing it on political. Um, you know, everything's political, and, and including saying, "Okay, we're gonna we're gonna bypass the regulations that we set up to protect the public." So, you drug companies, you can just make these vaccines, and uh, we'll buy them. We're going we're gonna to put billions of dollars into your bank account and um, don't worry about, you know, we'll, we'll see what happens to the public. And if something bad happens, then we'll figure out what to do. And um, it, it, it's, a, it's a problem and it takes the responsibility away from us. And um, there's so many other factors. And in, in my current paper, I'm, gonna, um, I'm talking about the importance of sulfur, sulfur-rich foods like cruciferous vegetables and, um, and, and, and yeah, sulforaphane and, um, that makes glutathione, which is our most important uh, antioxidant. But those uh, sulfur in particular is um, something that we use on our cell, cells to protect um, our bodies from incoming invasions of, of, of viruses and bacteria. And, um, they're showing that uh, the lack of sulfur, the poor sulfur metabolism is allowing this to happen. And um, that's, that's a big part of the process as well. So again, it's, it's the junk food diet that causes the overfat. And the junk food diet doesn't just cause people to be overfat. The junk food diet displaces healthy foods. So now we're, we're, we're really in a state of malnutrition. And so um, the, the, the junk food diet makes us overfat. Even if we go out and sit in the sun every day, we're not going to get the vitamin D we need because people who are overfat tend to not 
um, metabolize vitamin D. So they can sit in the sun all they want. They're not going to, even if they take vitamin D, they may not restore their levels to normal because they're over fat. So what do we do? <laughs> what, what's the, um, you know, this, it can, it can, you can sort of get into these rabbit holes and be like, God, like there's no politician that's ever going to speak up for, you know, for metabolic health and efficiency or aerobic capacity. So we have to, you know, maybe stop delegating our, uh, stop making them the parent and do the, you know, put on our big girl pants and big boy pants. And, um, you know, where do we start? If I have some, if I have some, you know, one of my audience members now is listening to me like, listen, I know that I've been eating all the bread. I've been much more sedentary than I should be. What are some of the things that that individual might start to do that doesn't feel overwhelming? Cause I think that the overwhelm, and we were talking a lot about this in terms of societal pressures and like, you got to do the big thing, like the big diet, the big exercise, you know, what are some of the things that are going to move the needle for this person? So yeah, that we, you, you, yeah, you've got to do the latest diet, not just the big thing. It's the latest diet, the, whatever the media is pushing. Um, and you, you, you use the, the, the right word, overwhelm. Uh, people are overwhelmed. First of all, they don't trust the government. And so when the government says, you know, eat this way and exercise that way, um, they, they just don't trust that. A lot of that is wrong because, uh, as I showed in one of my studies, as exercise levels have been rising in recent years, over fat has been rising even more. So another, another and I just did a, a study with a team of researchers and we showed that how, how dramatically significant, significant that um, the diet uh, had on, on, um, on, body fat loss than exercise. Basically, uh, the diet um, wins out hands down. And so, so even for shows, like I've competed in figure competitions, like 80% diet, like you could, you know, kind of get to the gym. I mean, I still trained, but you know, 80% of how you look really is the food that you put in your body. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but I think, I think to avoid, and, and there's some good studies about how many recommendations people can tolerate. It's not very many. And so in, in some of my papers, when I, I talk about, okay, here are, the, here are the problems, well outlined now, what do we do? And I'm, I'm careful not to, you know, babble on about all the standard recommendations, because first of all, they're wrong. But people, as soon as they start hearing all these things, they shut down and then they, they say, well, I don't, I'm not going to do anything. I've tried all those things. It doesn't work. Um, one thing, just one thing. Um, if, if you want to improve your health and protection from COVID and other infections and be healthier, um, stop eating junk food. That's it. Stop eating junk food. And your body fat will come down. And it's not that you have to wait for it to come down. But as soon as your metabolism changes, which occurs after two meals, actually. So as soon as you change your, your bad metabolism and make it better, um, your immune system will start working better. Um, your gut, your brain, everything will start slowly start working better. And, um, and that, can, that could be a big, big factor very quickly. 
And so we have to take responsibility. We, we're in charge of our bodies, not the government, not healthcare, that's for sure. Um, and so we, we, need to, we need to take charge. That's really the, the best recommendation. And the, the one that's going to help the fastest is, re, is getting rid of junk food. Yeah. And I, um, I'm going to butcher this quote, but the, um, you know, the, be- the fastest way to get there is slowly. Right. So it's like, just do the, you know, may- and maybe you want to just change the way you eat for four months. And, and that's the only intervention that you do. And P- and like, to your point around people wanting to throw everything at it, like just make that, make the one thing, the one thing, the one thing. And then at four months you can say, Hey, you know what? I think maybe I'll go for a lunchtime walk or I'll, you know, set a little alarm on my phone and I'll do like 10 squats or something, you know, every hour on the hour, something like that. And you do that for another four months. And then you add something else on, you know, you prioritize sleep, you know, you, you just layer on all these health habits. Yeah. I think when, <clears throat> when people, when people, and, and I've just seen this for, for years and years, when people start changing their metabolism and reducing body fat, things start falling into place. They start feeling better. They start looking better. They start acting better. They can think better. Um, and, and once that starts to happen, the rest falls into place quickly. They, they become more intuitive. They want to walk more. They want to be active. Um, and, but, but you've got to get that start um, with something that's going to change quickly. It it shouldn't, it shouldn't take months before you step on the scale and see a change, which doesn't mean anything because you could lose weight and still be over fat. Right. Or your body comp could be changing. Like you could be gaining muscle and losing fat and the weights, like the scale is a very poor indicator of what's going on. It is. I've seen way too many people gain weight and lose two inches on their waist. Mm -hmm. Right. Well, where can people find more about your work? You know, we're going to make sure that we reference all of the papers and articles uh, at your website, but where can people find out more about you and your work uh, and the literature that you're producing? Uh, the health and fitness website is philmaffetone.com. And um, if, if you're, if you're, um, if you go to the, the medical library, uh, you just type my name and you'll see all my papers, but um, I think all the papers I've published in recent years, um, uh, we, we posted a press release on my website, which kind of describes the paper in simple terms. So they're all there as well. And, um, you know, with all the articles like the one on what is, what really is junk food, um, that's a really important one. The two week test um, it, there's a whole article that will guide you through the test, you know, do this, do that. Um, and so that, that website has all my health and fitness material. Amazing. Well, we'll make sure that those are um, in the show notes. Um, this has been such a pleasure uh, chatting with you. I know that my audience is going to get such amazing value out of uh, uh, all the wisdom that you've shared today. And hopefully we can make slow sexy. (laughs) We can go slow and that can be, you know, we can surrender to the slowness because that's, you know, as I was saying, the fastest way to get there is slowly. So thank you so much. Thanks, Stephanie. 
All right, all right. I hope you enjoyed today's episode. And I must give you the obligatory legal and medical disclaimer here. This podcast, Better with Dr. Stephanie, is for general information only. And the advice, recommendations we discuss do not replace medicine, chiropractic, or any other primary healthcare provider's advice, treatment, or care. In the consumption of this podcast, there is no doctor-patient relationship that has been formed and the use and implementation of the information discussed are at the sole discretion of the listener. The information and opinions shared on this podcast are not intended to be a substitute for primary care, diagnosis, or treatment. In other words, guys, be smart about this. Take it with a grain of salt. Take this information to your primary healthcare provider and have a discussion with him or her to make the best choice that is for you. Remember, I am a doctor, but I am not your doctor. And these conversations are meant for educational purposes only.